passages that he might preach from. And I was particularly excited that we landed on 1 John. I don't know if you're very familiar with it or not, but over the years it's become one of my favorite sections of Scripture because John is just so attuned to the needs of the people that he's writing to. And his words in this letter are so thoroughly built upon his experiences with Jesus. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, also written by John, you might have figured that out already, um, so much of 1 John is basically taking big key themes from the speeches of Jesus himself that John remembers and anchoring them down in application for, so what does this mean for us and how are we supposed to live? Um, it's a particularly beautiful gift to have not only his gospel, but then um, these letters as well, because in it we can see the ways that John himself was impacted and shaped by these themes that Jesus spoke upon um, when they were together in person. Um, throughout all of 1 John, you can see these themes again and again, this idea of light and darkness. Um, you see the beginnings and the end of uh, life and how God and specifically Jesus is present and is a part of both of those. We see the ideas of water and life being developed and built out. We see especially the idea of uh, truth being embodied, or you might even say incarnated, to become the physical person of Jesus Christ. We see the summation of all faithfulness presented in this self-sacrificing love, this obedience that embodies all of God's attitude and approach towards us. And in the text this past week, uh, 1 John, the end of chapter 2, and we'll see this developed even in the further weeks as well, see one of these other themes throughout the Gospel of John that got put on display again and again, the word abide, that became repeated throughout that whole section that we read in um, chapter 2. Um, this word abide... Uh, or in the Greek, meno or meno, is, it means very similar to our English word. It means to kind of reside, to stay in a particular geographic location or place. It's got this sense of just coming in. There's both the, I came through town and so I stayed at the, you know, at my friend's house. I abided there. Or it could also be this place of, well, that's where I go home to. You know when you go home and you kind of sit down on the couch and you just go, ah. Oh. If you've got kids at home that are my age, you don't get to do that until about 9.30 to 10 p.m. Um, but, but that moment of just rest and comfort and you are, you are inhabiting a place. And you just go, ah. Oh. That's also what this word abide means. Even in the Greek, it can carry both of those meanings. Um, this word is used by Jesus just shy of 30 times throughout the book of John. And the majority of those usages are not, though sometimes he does, he's saying we're going to go through this area and we'll abide in that house before we move on to the next place. But the majority of the times that he uses it, it's also in this, this metaphorical way of saying to embody relationship, to move towards, to live out of a particular presence or relationship. In 1 John, John uses it 23 times almost exclusively here as a metaphor for relationship with God. Comparatively, if you look at the ways that Paul uses it, um, an author of many other books of the New Testament, he uses it about 29 times, 
But that's scattered across seven books rather than just in the one. And most of those usages are from the book of Acts as we see how Paul and um, the others are making these different journeys and they're staying in this place and they're staying in that place and they're staying in this place. The ways that Jesus would use it when he would speak had a very, very unique meaning. And the ways that John, the author of our text, uses it also has a very unique meaning. John then continues to use it frequently in his second letter and in his third letter. And these themes can continue to be traced all the way even through the book of Revelation. So it's just important to have that in mind before we read our text as we consider a little bit more of what it was. So I want you to consider this sermon um, and the other sermons that I'll get to do along the book of, um, well, as we go, punctuating through our journey through 1 John as kind of like bonus episodes you know, not necessarily fitting into the main flow, but a quick, hey, let me tell you a little bit about this that informs the greater story of what's happening. So as we read our text this morning, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, and we'll get into the context of this a bit more in a moment. I want you to remember that this is not just another text that happens to have some parallel themes. This is part of what formed the character, the ministry, the very spirit of the disciple whom Jesus loved, the Apostle John. So consider Jesus' words together with me now. Chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. So as we consider our text, I want you to think through the the context of this moment too. Do you remember what's going on at this point in the book of John? Uh, Maybe not. Jesus has completed most of his ministry already at this point. In fact, almost he's really done all of his public ministry except for the final step of his crucifixion. Uh, He's withdrawn from all the crowds. He's in the city of Jerusalem and he's with his disciples having what will come to be known as the Last Supper. In their mind, this is another Passover. It's the big festival. It's like the Christmas feast of the year where people would gather with friends and family and and worship and focus and enjoy and celebrate and feast together. Um, This meal has gone a little strangely. 
Um, You may recall Jesus came in, and as all the apostles are thinking, this is great, we're here at the feast in the capital city, and they're all kind of jockeying for position, Jesus slides out, and he comes back into the room rather strangely dressed, um, almost undressed. And he bends down, and he then washes all of the disciples' feet. And he's reorienting the priorities of their heart. And he's showing them what real position in the kingdom will be. It will not be lording it over, but it will be a mission of submission and kindness and even self-humbling to the point of humiliation before everyone. And you will recall what the apostles didn't know, that amongst those seated there was Judas himself. So then after this, they have the meal and they kind of dismiss Judas and he goes off to go do what he's going to do as Jesus Hence, and they have the meal, and the last verse, the last line of John chapter 14 is Jesus, after they've got these full bellies, says, all right, let's get up and walk. And so this conversation that we've got isn't reclining around the table. This is the, all right, we're getting up, we're moving. There, it was pretty common for Jesus to go and take strolls through gardens and to take time away from everyone and pray. And so it wouldn't have been too much of a surprise that on this big feast, this kind of focal point of the worship calendar, that Jesus would do the same. And so this is the conversation as they're walking from the upper room, out of the city of Jerusalem, and over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so you got to think in the disciples' mind, this is not too strange, but in Jesus' mind, what is this? These are his final words to his people. This is his last chance to equip them for all of what they will need before he is arrested, tried, condemned, and killed. Before he is raised again and meets them once more. This is what he is offering them to endure, to hang in there. And what does he focus on? Well, this concept that can be especially hard for us as North American individualists to grasp, but this concept of abiding in him, of decentering ourselves, and actually then submitting ourselves wholly to another. Now, this is not in a way that is demeaning or creating like a codependency, like you're nothing without me. You can't survive. You are worthless unless you have me. If you don't have me, you are just to be tossed away and burned, which is some ways that these words have been abused. But rather, this is much more like a creator saying to something, this is what you were designed for. If, if you don't have the tracks train you'll never be able to run. If you don't have this battery toy, you'll never be able to make the obnoxious noises that scare the parents when they're walking through the, even, the, the room in the evening and they just start talking. Um, if, if you don't have this gasoline car, you're not going anywhere. It's actually this reminder. What is the most important thing? To know your source. And so when Jesus says, abide, and when John says, Abide. It is this re anchoring of our hearts right back into our very source, our Heavenly Father, through the love of Jesus Christ.
Let me read it one more time for us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And again, this tells us the tone with which we can understand these words. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus does this for the disciples because he knows that later that evening, just a couple hours away, at his arrest, they are going to scatter. They're suddenly going to have this experience of, I have to fend for myself. I am on my own. And Jesus is using his last moments with them to say, no, abide in me. Abide in me. And isn't this how all of our hearts work? Isn't this truly what all of us need to hear? On our own, we just simply are not enough. We cannot be our own center, and yet time and time and time again, we try to be. When time in our work doesn't pan out the way that we wanted it to. When we snap and we just yell at our kids. When we're just trying to live and avoid the same broken patterns of sin that we fall into again and again and again. We think, oh, I'm really going to get it this time. And then, of course, we don't. And Jesus' words here are a deep mercy saying, no, abide in me. Because in the midst of our problem, God's provision for us is that he gives us access to our one and true source, which we were designed for. You see, this call to abide goes all the way back to the garden. Not Gethsemane, but the very first garden of Eden. Where Adam and Eve, tempted by the serpent, said, yeah, I want to have this for myself. I want to be a source unto myself. I want to be a branch that can thrive even though it is cut off from the vine. And Jesus firmly, but also graciously, invites us to remember, no, this is just not the case. And this is exactly who Jesus is. He's the one who says, abide in me. He's the vine bending down to the severed branch to pull it back in. Think about this moment again. He's, he's standing here just before Gethsemane. 
just before getting arrested and he's speaking to his disciple and he's looking them in the eyes saying, you're about to scatter, I get it, but don't abide in me. Stay hooked into me. Find your life and your rest in me. Stay in me, inhabit me and my love. So our call here then is to recenter our lives around him, to literally abide in Jesus. So as we look at this text, we're briefly going to consider three ways of which we can do that. How do we recenter or abide in Jesus? Well, first, by cultivating an active dependence on him. I won't read it all the way through again, but in those 11 verses, there's 10 abides. Abide, 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 abide. I think that was 10. I lost track a little bit. Um, but there's this, this repeated, deeply emphasized invitation, but also command. Abide here. This is such that we are not just to haphazardly go, all right, I got it. I'm with Jesus. We'll press on now. But this is a call to have a firm and deep awareness of exactly who we are and what our dependency is. Now, not many of us are probably very accomplished farmers. I've seen some of your gardens, and I know some of you, this analogy resonates pretty well. But for the rest of us, let me change it just a little bit. Instead of thinking like vine and branches, I want you to think like hose and spigot. Okay? So if the purpose is to get much fruit from a vine, the purpose of a hose is to produce water, right? You, you take your hose, you put the sprayer on, you walk out to your garden, you pull the trigger, and pff, hopefully that all works. But imagine you disconnect the hose from the spigot, or as we've all done at one point or another, we've pulled the hose all the way over to the garden, and we spray it at the plants, and we pull the trigger, and instead of pff, we get... Oh, we got to walk all the way back and tie it back in and wee, 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 make it all happen. Um, that's the analogy here. Think of it this way. Abide in me and I in you, as the hose cannot spray water by itself unless it is tied into the spigot, neither can you unless you are tied into me. I am the spigot, you are the hose. Whoever is tied into me... And I and him, he it is that sprays much water. For apart from me, you can spray nothing. This is the analogy. And this is Jesus' invitation and call to us. Um, and this actually matters because how frequently do we try to do good things in and of ourselves? How many times after fighting with our spouse again when it was really actually our fault, do we then make this vow, all right, I'm going to do better next time? Or maybe even on the front end of that fight, we go, all right, I'm going to do better this time. And then we don't. Or how, how many times are our prayers laced with the words, all right, God, help me to really get this right this time. But Jesus' whole invitation here, his whole commands is something entirely different. He's saying, abandon that. Remember, you cannot do this on your own. Come back to me for mercy and grace. Be fueled and be filled by me and by me alone.
Jesus himself models this for us time and time again in his own ministry as you think through what he did and how he conducted himself. Um, just a little bit earlier in his gospel, Jesus, speaking of his own authority, says to the crowds around him in chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows himself in all that he, in all that he himself is doing. This is the same relationship that Jesus lived out with this active, even, he, even though he was God himself, nonetheless, he lived with this dependency, this constant awareness that he as a human, that we as humans are but the hose. We have no ability to produce water. We are but conduits of it. We are but branches tied to the vine. Um, if you look at the text that we've been working through, um, 1 John, this gets developed even a bit further. Um, in chapter 4, which we'll come to in a little while, listen to the words here. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, that the the love that God has for us, God is love. Whoever abides in his love abides in God and God abides in him. You see this conduit of love. You see this flow that flows forth through us from Jesus originating in God. This call to abide means that we are to cultivate an active dependence on him. We can do this in all kinds of different ways, whether it's just through following some of the rhythms of our week and coming in here and worshiping, or cultivating an idea and developing and refining and studying what it means to Sabbath. Still part of the Ten Commandments still a call on our lives and on our hearts and on our actions. Or whether it means just recognizing the rhythms of our everyday life where we are dependent on Jesus. There are all kinds of tools for this, whether it's devotional books or whether it's having your, you know, trying to cultivate rhythms of quiet times and study personally, or even if it's um, just pausing to pray in whatever moment, whether it's a beautiful prayer or not, just to recheck with God. It's recognizing those moments when you get fouled that just like with the hose, you address it. You don't just leave it all pinched up and figure, out hey, it'll work itself out and keep just spraying, but you pause and you recognize when your heart is a foul. Don't just press on. But go back and consider, how did you get here? Why did this happen? What must you confess? Who must you make amends with? Who do you need to challenge? And leaving your sacrifice at the altar and going finding your brother who has something against you and hearing them and confessing. This means, again, even just actually stopping what you're doing and reconnecting in prayer, whether that's midday or even if that's mid-meeting or phone call, even if it's mid-fight, 
or mid-meal or whenever you need, but just stopping and remembering once again, God, I am seeking to be my own source when I am not. The first step to abiding in Jesus is to cultivate that active dependence upon him. And secondly, it means to be centering his words. If you look further down through what Jesus has said in a couple of different points in John chapter 15, um, he's quick to reassure them as they're wondering, oh, this language of vines, branches, cut off, burning. He says in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then a bit further down in verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This idea of centering his words is actually knowing who he is and what he is about. It's not just drifting around and becoming like the biggest scholar on it, but actually knowing. It's like, like um, what, well, you ever see people who wear t-shirts of bands, but then actually have no idea any of the music that that band played? That's maybe just a particular pet peeve of mine. But if you're going to wear a Led Zeppelin shirt, you should know a few of their albums and certainly a couple of their songs. Um, you should know a little bit of their lives and where they came from, and you should just be able to appreciate this deeply. Yeah, and maybe just my own pet peeve. But it's, it's the same kind of thing. Jesus is saying, you cannot just be part of the Jesus crowd. You cannot recognize that the people around you, well, they really like that Led Zeppelin music, so I'm going to, oh, it's on sale at Target, perfect. I'm going to wear that too, I can be in. Faith does not work this way. Following Jesus does not work this way. It did not work for the disciples at Gethsemane when a few hours later, things showed up and suddenly they realized they had no idea where their anchor was and they were going to bolt. And it does not work for us when in our own lives, challenge arises, difficulties come and we realize, oh, <laughs> yeah, this is not working out for me, so I'm out of here. But this is the call to, again, abide in him. If you're going to wear the shirt, you need to know the band. Now, this does not mean go and burn the shirt, you liar. No, no, this means the exact opposite. Keep wearing the shirt, but actually go also listen to the music. If you're already connected to the church, if you're connected to who Jesus is, dig in all the deeper. Because the whole message of the gospel is you actually can't figure this out for yourself. But the more that you spend time close to God, the more that you humble yourself before him, then the more that Jesus meets you in those places and draws you closer to him. It's like actually meeting the band and then they give you the shirt. Jesus had a t-shirt cannon, but that's taking the analogy way too far. Um, <clears throat> the call here is not to just become knowledge buffs of Jesus, but to live in who he is, to fall in love with the music, to let it shape you, to let it be a part of you to let it be what actually steers you. Again, um, he tells him in verse three, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. If you've heard the words of Jesus and you have submitted your heart to him and confessed that he is Lord and asked him to be your salvation, you're in. Now you might experience some pruning, but you are in. And brothers and sisters, that means you're safe. That means you can rest that means you can come into these pews the same ways that you collapse on your couch at the end of the day 
And you can go, oh, Lord, thank you so much that I can be back with you again. (sighs) These pews are not places of fear. This cross is not a symbol of guilt. But it is a symbol of coming home. It is a symbol of abiding. It means that abiding in him, that his words is what steers you straight. Look again at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. One of my favorite sections of scripture, ones that has been guiding for me throughout much of my life, is the book of Joshua because of this epic moment when God meets Moses, or I'm sorry, meets Joshua right after Moses has died and he says to him these sobering words. Joshua, now to be leading the people, God meets him and he says to him, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. That's quite the abrupt entry point. If you recall, he says, Now, therefore, arise, go over the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I have given to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I give to you, just as I promised Moses. Again, this emphasis of promise. And if you skip down a little bit further, he says, No man shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall lead this people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. And how is he supposed to do that? By being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's this do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Meditate on it day and night. Spend time in it. Be focused in it. Be shaped by it. We don't have time to go into all of what Ephesians has to say about this, about putting off the old man and being remade into the new man in Christ, or what goodness all of Psalm 119 has to say where he exemplifies again and again that his word is a lamp to our feet. It is our heritage. It is what makes us new. It is what, hearkening back again to Genesis, um, the creation account in one through three, where God, when we cling to the dust of what we were made from, that God breathes new life back into us according to his word. Abiding in his word, centering his words into who we are. And of course, Jesus himself fulfills this and models this for us, especially if you think back to Matthew chapter 4 and his temptation in the wilderness. How did he meet Satan's temptations? But time and again, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And finally, this text leads us to this challenging section of engaging God's will. How do we abide in him? We actively engage his will. And we get this in the section which can be so challenging to understand. 
Verse 7 and following, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, this is not just, all right, if you follow God, then you get what you want. Hopefully, we're all familiar enough with this prosperity gospel of do X, Y, and Z, and God will give you A, B, and C, live the formula, believe hard enough the formula, and it'll all come flowing in. These words are still here, and they're still very challenging. But again, I want you to think through. If if you are properly tied into your source, and if you have the right vision for what your, your source is seeking to accomplish, if you have studied the word of your source and you know where it is going, and then you channel yourself to follow his will, then what are the things that you're praying for? But, well, it's just like we studied in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be made holy. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom be the thing that is coming. And so the things that we are praying for are are to follow in his way. And the things that God is blessing are the things that follow in his will. Now, again, before we reduce this down to just some wishy-washy, all right, well, God, whatever you want to do, just do it. And what will be, what will be. And we'll just kind of drift here and just help me to accept it. This is a very active prayer. This is a prayer that should launch our behinds out of the pews and into the rest of Annapolis. This is what should season all of our cities, our workplaces, our families with not just EP, but with the love of Christ made incarnate through our behavior, our actions, our words, our desires. Um, One commentator, James Hamilton, spoke on this saying, this is not a resignation to whatever some detached, deistic, unconcerned fate has determined. Rather, this is a declaration of war on unrighteousness, injustice, unbelief, disobedience, and dishonor. To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come, requiring the crushing of idols, the tearing down of strongholds, and the charging of the gates of hell. Remember, this is what Jesus has done. The Son can do nothing of his own accord. This is what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And this is what we are then not only invited, but we are then equipped and we are even commissioned to then go, therefore, and do. Because this is what Jesus has done on our behalf from the Father, embodied his will and accomplished it for us. The author, Jamar Tisby, reduces this down very simply by saying, justice takes sides. When we are engaging his will, we are not fence riding and just trying our best to understand, well, it could be good on this side, it could be good on that side. Well, you've got to understand, you know, there's two sides to every story, and so we just kind of let's sit back and watch this play out, and we'll just be calm and quiet. This requires the crushing of idols, the tearing down of strongholds, and the charging of the gates of hell. To pray for God's will to be done is to declare war on unrighteousness, injustice, unbelief, disobedience, and dishonor. Brothers and sisters, 
to abide in Christ, to follow him, is for you personally to declare war on all of these such things in your life, in the life of the oppressed that you see around you, on behalf of the weak, the outsider, the person who is pushed to the edges because we don't necessarily like them or care for them or they're different from us. The immigrants and the refugees and the people we just don't like to sit next to. Our call is to engage his will. See, again, in this, our problem is that we are not enough on our own to support the whole mission of what Jesus has done. Or even just to live as humans were designed to live. But God's provision for us is that he grants us in Christ Jesus access to our true source again. So that we, answering him, might have our battery, might have our train tracks, might have our spigot, so that abiding in him, we might cultivate an active dependence, be centered on his word, and engage his will actively in our life. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our healer and our redeemer. We thank you that you are the one who has accomplished all of these things on our behalf so that we may abide in you. Heavenly Father, lead us in your word so that even as you have embodied your Father's will toward us, we might, as your servants, then become practiced and even skillful at embodying your words, at abiding in your love, and at living your mercy, your grace, your truth, your justice, your care, your compassion through the whole world around us so that we might bring glory to your name and that we might stand as your people even amongst challenging times. It's in your name, O Heavenly Father, that we pray all of these things. Amen.